people look back and, you know, my friends from high school, well, we always knew you would be premier. And I always say, how did you know that? And I didn't. You know, I was the first female premier, but I'd never been male premier. I'd never been premier. And so it was just all new. I think I kind of stood out a little bit. It was interesting. I can recall going um, through the YVR Vancouver airport at one point in time in this just you know one of those casual conversations and what do you do for work and I just I'm work for the government and she, you're that woman premier and I said as a matter of fact yes I am <laughs> hi there friends it's Kate Graham here thanks for tuning in to no second chances so I'm not much of a mountain climber in fact I've only climbed one mountain in my entire life and I can tell you it wasn't very glamorous What I remember about that climb was a lot of sweat, a few contemplations of just turning around, and many moments wondering if my legs were just going to give out from under me. But then something happened. And if you've climbed a mountain, you know exactly what I mean. All of a sudden, you can see the peak. Those tired legs get a second wind, and it's a sprint to the top. And when you get there, wow, exhilarating, awe-inspiring, powerful. The view from the top makes the long trek to get there all worth it. And even though somewhere in the back of your mind, you know that what goes up must come down, in that moment, you revel in the spectacular feat that is reaching the peak. That's what this episode is all about. When it comes to Canadian politics, the peak is becoming a first minister, the prime minister of Canada, or the premier of a Canadian province or territory. Among millions of Canadians, only about 300 people have ever summited this peak, and this includes just 12 women. What's the view like from the top? Well, today we're going to find out. You've heard them talk about the climb up, their childhoods, early days in politics, running in a leadership race, but today we're going to hear our female first ministers talk about what it's like to reach the peak of Canadian politics. Well, it certainly was a tremendous experience to to go through and to travel from one end of the island to the other and meet with all kinds of people. And and, uh, uh, it's an experience I'll, I'll never forget. Much like last week, Prince Edward Islanders headed to the polls in March of 1993. Catherine Kalbeck was elected as the premier, becoming the first woman in Canada to win a general election as leader. And when the campaign was over, uh, you certainly were relieved that you'd won. But uh, then you're you're on a high because uh, you know you're you're the next premier, of Prince Edward Island. Then the victory party is great because you were surrounded by people who supported you and encouraged you and worked for you, and uh, they're all happy and you. It's an opportunity for you to express your gratitude to them. And then uh, it sets in. You know, you've got a tremendous responsibility here and uh, all the challenges and the issues to deal with. So you're down to working hard. When we started these interviews, I was expecting to hear a lot of excitement about that big moment, becoming the prime minister or becoming the premier. Maybe feelings of elation or awe or enjoying moments of celebration. But you know what? These women really didn't talk much about that. Sure, they acknowledged that it was exciting to win a leadership race or win an election, but what they focused on when talking about finally reaching the peak was a common desire 
even an urgency to get to work. We had a very aggressive agenda. Uh, we, when I went in, there was concern about jobs. Uh, the unemployment rate was, I think, 17 or 18 percent here. Uh, we were running a big deficit. Uh, there was concern whether the link was going to get built. Electricity rates were too high, and there were a lot of different issues. Now, um, during my time, we did start and finish uh, Confederation Bridge. Electricity rates uh, came down. Uh, the, we brought in two balanced budgets. Actually, one had a surplus. Uh, we had electoral reform, municipal reform, and as I say, it's a very aggressive agenda, probably too aggressive. She's not the only one who had an aggressive agenda when she reached the top. Kim Campbell knows this story very well. I was sworn in as prime minister on June the 25th. I had to drop the writ in the beginning of September. She summited a peak that no other woman has ever reached, becoming the prime minister of Canada. But the clock was ticking, with an election just three months away. But I was not afraid the day I was sworn in at Rideau Hall. I came out and um, was interviewed, and I described myself as a feminist. And, you know, that was, you know, there was an audible intake of breath from ghost to ghost, but people got over it. <laughs> but when you're prime minister, um, you know, again, it was, it was a big deal. But it, that didn't mean that I could immediately turn around and deliver on a feminist agenda, or even if that would be appropriate for me to do as prime minister. Nobody can deliver. Even your prime minister, you can't deliver on a whole agenda. You're still governing a whole country, and not everybody wants the same things. And so you have to, your role is to try to identify the things that are in the national interest that you can deliver on. Now, Kim's not one to set her sights low. She knew what she wanted to deliver on. She wanted to change politics. When I was running for the leadership, I produced a document about doing politics, and I forget the actual title of it. Um, but I had, in the course of being a minister, been struck by how hard it is for government backbenchers to communicate the extent to which they are representing their constituents. And, you know, like when I was in my gun control, some of my colleagues did not support it, and they had their teeth in my ankles. And, uh, you know, I... They were doing their job. They were doing what their constituents wanted. And I always negotiated dissent with my colleagues. I'd say, are you going to vote against? Do you want to abstain? Do you want to be out of the House? I understood that for some of them on some of the issues, particularly in the gun control one, that they couldn't support. So I had written this document about um, how you know, I, I look to use prime ministerial power and how I felt that we used the whip too much. And I talked about various ways in which it would actually empower uh, government backbenchers, and I thought the importance of it was that it would address some of the cynicism people felt about party politics. So I created this document, and I had a little press conference, and I released the document, and then one of the reporters said, yeah, but what do you really stand for? The proposal didn't exactly get the traction she was looking for, but she was able to make other changes. I redesigned the ministries of government because I wanted to make cabinets smaller. And I actually think that it was a very good design, if I do say so myself, and much of it has survived. So, I, you know, I did my best. Um, but again, there was so little time uh, that we had to go to an election so quickly. In the end, Kim Campbell served as prime minister for just 132 days, but with a lasting impact. 
What was good about being the first woman prime minister was it clearly meant a lot to a lot of people and the excitement of people, uh, men and women. People would say to me, you know, I was, I was eight when you became prime minister. I'm like, it was such a big deal. Or I was in university and I just remember it so well. And I remember, you know, we watched it, how excited we were. And they don't say, and then when you lost, we thought it was game over. They remember that excitement. They see that. And that's important to me because, um, you know, it, it was a big deal. You know, people who also tweet and say, you know, well, you were prime minister for 10 minutes. You know, my husband gets mad. and People say, well, I guess your wife was busy that weekend. But if you look back, you know, it's, it's you know, 26 years now. And nobody else has done it. And it's not because there aren't good people out there, but it's harder than it looks. Former British Columbia Premier Christy Clark is the first to admit that. She's the longest-serving female first minister in Canadian history. Yeah, it was those first few years were really hard. That was the hardest thing I've ever done from an emotional perspective. It was very hard for me to get my message across on my fiscal credentials. So um, I had a very strong view that we needed to balance the budget. And one of the things that I said was, um, we are going to constrain the growth in um, spending on new spending on healthcare, which was the fastest growing area of the budget. And all of my opponents said, she doesn't understand what she's talking about. She doesn't understand. And it was really hard for me to make my point that I did understand how money worked. I did understand the budget. And I did understand that in order to balance the budget, you need to constrain government growth and government spending in the fastest growing area of government spending. And you need a target to do that. You need to set that. And when my opponent said she just doesn't understand... The media just kind of took that as gospel, that I wasn't good at that. And, you know, again, it's girls aren't good at math, right? Being premier is a tough job for anyone. But when there's a struggle to be taken seriously in the role, delivering on an ambitious agenda is that much harder. The problem with it is if you can't do anything about it. Because the minute you say, hey, that was sexist, oh, look, she's just whining, isn't she, right? Kathleen Wynne was very careful about calling out um, homophobic comments for the same reason. Could you just, you're so lucky to have the job, right? It's such a privilege to do it. And you you shouldn't complain. You shouldn't complain. But, um, you know, I, I, uh, I think we do need to be talking about this. And it's not an ideological thing. It's, a, it's something that Kathleen Wynne and Rachel Notley and me and Alison Redford have all experienced, and we do really need to talk about it. So let's hear from Alison Redford. What was it like to be the Premier of Alberta? And it was funny because I was just upstairs today looking in my closet. I look at the clothes that I wore when I was Premier. I mean, I could show them to you. Gray suits, uh, you know, uh, Brooks Brothers button-down shirts with French cuffs, um, loafers, rarely a dress. And if I wore a dress, it was either to a formal event or it was a dress that was attached to a suit. Like it, and, 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 and without even realizing it, the message that I was sending, and it was the message that was best received, was, yeah, she's a woman, but look at her. She looks like a man. She dresses like a man. You know, she's not wearing purple. She's not wearing pink. She's not wearing... But then... It, so, so that was what it was. True story, folks. After the interview, she showed me her closet. And yes, there was a section with a lot of gray suits. And when I look back now, 
I wish I had understood that because I would have tried to make sure that from the very beginning I was a little more integrated around those issues. And now I think that it needed more explanation. I think people needed to understand better that you could be a loving mother and still balance a $40 billion budget or, you know, be a loving mother and go and have a debate with Al Gore. And I don't think that that was something that even, I guess, what was it now, 11 years ago, people registered. I think there was still that idea that you're either still the fairly kind of traditional, typical female that juggles lots of things, or you're the premier. Perhaps not surprisingly, this was a common theme that I heard from many of the women. They had big agendas. They wanted to do politics differently. But being on top is harder than it looks. And this is particularly true when you don't look like everyone else who has been in the job. You know, I was the first female premier, but I'd never been male premier. I'd never been premier. And so it was just all new. Kathleen Wynne was sworn in as Ontario's premier in 2013. She, too, walked into a challenging situation with a steep road ahead. And what we were dealing with, we were in a minority parliament, and we... um, we had a lot of baggage, you know. We had uh, an issue around gas plants that was very, very um, contentious. And so I spent a lot of time in that first year trying to find a way to, um, to, to open up the, the processes, open up the information, let people know what had gone on so that by the time an election came, we'd be able to put some of that behind us. In terms of... being the first woman, I think it was more people being excited about that and coming up to me and bringing their daughters to me and saying, you know, I want my daughter to know that she can do anything that that she wants to. The fact that there were six female premiers in that first year. Um, I had the I had the privilege of of chairing the um, table of the premiers, the Council of the Federation as it's called, in Niagara on the Lake. It just happened that Ontario was in the rotation. And so um, you know I got to chair the premier's table when there were six women at the table, which was almost half. Um, so so it was it was an exhilarating um, time for me and for us as a government. And it felt like we were, um, we were breaking ground. And, you know, having uh, the deputy premier as my good friend, uh, Deb Matthews, having Liz Sandals as the minister of education, we joked about the grandmothers running the place, you know, and it was, uh, it was really empowering to um, to a lot of women I know, and they as they saw us um, in those offices, putting into the budget things that we knew were going to directly impact women's lives, increasing funding for early childhood educators and childcare workers. You know that um, I had male colleagues say to me, "These things would not be happening if it wasn't a woman in that chair." So so I know that I know that there were initiatives that we took, and at that point. I felt proud of that. That's all I felt, was proud that we were able to, uh, to do those things. And if it was because I was a woman, then that's okay. The Globe and Mail referred to me as Mr. Pat Duncan. That was funny. That's Mrs. Pat Duncan. 
also known as the former Premier of the Yukon and now a member of the Canadian Senate. It was interesting. I can recall going um, through the YVR Vancouver Airport at one point in time in this just, you know, one of those casual conversations and what do you do for work? And I just, oh, I work for the government. And she, You're that woman premier. I said, as a matter of fact, yes, I am. <laughs> sometimes it's funny, but sometimes gender can pose a real challenge. Going to my first premier's conference was like, oh my goodness, how am I going to do this? And I received the very sage advice that, um, you know what? Every one of those people got there the same way you did. Really, honestly, when you look at it, women's roles have changed a great deal. Men have not. And it's the challenges we've dealt. It's not for everybody. It's really not. This life is, is not... Oh, well, nothing worth doing is easy. When Nellie Cornier became Premier of the Northwest Territories in 1991, she already had decades of experience working in and with legislature, and even she found it challenging. Your knowledge base has to grow as you move along, you know, so you kick, you're continually trying to catch up. You know, it's not, there's never any day that you say, well, gee, was I know enough now I can go to do something else, you know, but it's there, you know, like everything's always been coming at not only me, myself, but at our people. Always coming at our people. How do you deal with it? And um, and we're dealing with some pretty sophisticated institutions, national national um, interest. You know, with all that we, you know, everything. And this is just a small little place. But all of a sudden, it was a place where there was just insurmountable um, expectation that all the oil and gas reserves were here. So we had a lot of people coming, a lot of different ideas, a lot of different uh, uh, contradicting interests. So, you know, you don't, uh, to say something came at you, I never really had a chance to think about it. You know, because it was it was such a continual um, effort to keep up and keep ahead of the flood. You know, that was always the way I looked at it. And anybody who could help me, I'd just grab them right away. If they knew more than I did, I'd say, hey, come be my friend, okay? <laughs> For the record, if Nellie Cornier asks you to be her friend, the correct answer is always yes. And Nellie knows better than most. The key to success in many things, and especially in politics, is to surround yourself with people you can trust. I was brought up where what you were told was what you were told. It was real. So what you had to really find out later, the more um, advanced you came in the political field, you find a lot of people not really telling you the truth or shrouding the truth. And... And you had to really work hard, so that's where people came so much, so beneficial to me. I say, what does he really mean anyway? What is he saying? You know, he's saying this, but doesn't act that way, you know? So having a lot of friends really helped because they knew what was going on and you learned, you know, from them. I will say, Nellie is choosy about her friends. Here's a fun fact about her. 
She's known as one of the mothers of Confederation for her role in the Charlottetown Accord. But when you ask her about how she feels about that particular title, well... Oh, yeah, lots of things. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't want to give birth to a lot of those people. (laughs) If they they were my kids, have some reckoning to do. (laughs) Politics can bring out both the best and the worst in us. And few know this better than the people who have made the climb and seen the view from the top. So what does the peak of Canadian politics look like from the perspectives of the women who've been there? Well, despite the fact that these women served in different provinces and territories and at different points in time, and they span different parties, the story of what it's like at the top is kind of the same. Reaching the peak is exciting, but it's the chance to actually lead that delivers the real rush. These women had bold, game-changing agendas, but getting things done in government is hard even more so when you're trying to fit into something that wasn't really tailored for you. But as Pat Duncan says, nothing worth doing is easy. We live in a world where we're not short on problems. But as Christy Clark reminds us, the only way that things change is when people step up to change them. So don't sit around and start thinking the world's going to change without your help, ladies, women. We've all got to step up and decide we want to do it. And I have never done anything Um, I will never do anything as fulfilling and as hard as what I did in politics, but it made me a better person. I think I made the province a better place. I think it made my son a better person watching me go through all that and because it was really difficult. But, you know, if at the end of our lives we want to look back and be the best possible person we can be, we have to do really hard things, really hard things. And um, so I would say to women, just get out there and keep at it. When we're 50% of every room, it's going to be different. It's really going to be different. I'll give the final word today to Kathy Dunderdale, the former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. If you've been tuning in to No Second Chances, you know what a ride politics has been for her, with big ups and downs in her personal and political life. But even after all that, when she looks back at her time at the peak, here's what she had to say. I'm pretty happy with the decisions that we took, with the knowledge and everything that we had at the time. Uh, I think we made the best decisions that we could with what we knew, and I'm 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 good with all of that. And we and we made those decisions for the right reasons. And I think we kept the people we served at the forefront of everything that we did. Uh, we had a principled approach, and I learned early on when you strayed away from your principles, you got in white water. When you forgot who hired you and why, you got in trouble. And so the sure, steady course was to keep that in front of you all the time, to keep that at the forefront of your mind. And that was going to be a pretty good guide. Not that you wouldn't make mistakes, of course you do. Uh, but you try hard not to. And if you stay oriented to, to those touchstones, of listening, of respect, of caring, of being responsible, of informing, of listening, and then you'll do all right with it. And so I'm happy with all of that. We end today on that powerful note with words of wisdom from the women who have summited the highest peak of Canadian politics. But as I said at the beginning, what goes up must come down. 
There's a peculiar pattern when you compare the political careers of male and female first ministers. Very few women reach the top, and when they do, it's often at times when the chances of failure are highest. That whole glass cliff thing. Women tend to last only about half the length of time that men do, and when they run for re-election, they lose. So, what happens? What exactly is it that causes things to fall apart? It's a big question, and one that we'll tackle in our next episode called Things Fall Apart, coming out on Monday, May the 6th. Don't miss it. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, you can subscribe and learn more about this project at nosecondchances.ca. Coming up on No Second Chances. The depth of my unlikability was pretty severe. And I'm just not sure whether that was all about our policies or whether there was an element of we're sick of her because she's a woman, she's a lesbian, and I put up with it, you know, I held my nose and voted, or I stayed at home the first time, but I'm, I'm not going to do it again because she really bugs me. And it still kind of brings tears to my eyes. All of those years later, to have this person accusing someone and saying they could be criminally charged, and now did she want to talk about not that incident, but what was I like as a mother? Like, why did, why did we need to have Angelita helping take care of Sarah with the underlying assumption that I was a bad mother? I think it's the one, this desire, this demand that we be perfect, and my gosh, it's hard to be perfect, and Donald Trump is president of the United States, okay? Like, we're not shooting for perfection anymore. Really, all we want, all we want is honesty. Like, most of the, not even every day, compared to his standard, and my God, my goodness, right? So, if you want an example of how you don't have to be perfect, just look south of the border. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020, written and hosted by me, Kate Graham. It's produced by Sarah Turnbull and I, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reynolds. Our music is composed and performed by Meredith Yeyenos. Mira Ahmad is the Communications and Operations Manager at Canada 2020, which is led by Executive Director Alex Patterson. This project would not be possible without the support of MasterCard. Hey there, it's Sarah from the 2020 Network, brought to you by Interact. If you like what you heard today and want to find out more about what Canada 2020 is up to, add yourself to our mailing list. That's where we share the details of our upcoming events and initiatives. And if you haven't yet already, subscribe to the 2020 Network. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We've got four awesome shows suited to everyone's unique tastes. To give you a sense of that, over the last few weeks we've heard from a blockbuster actor, a famous political commentator, a ballet dancer, an academic an author, a journalist. Yeah, you get the gist. So go now, subscribe, rate, and review. I'll catch you back here next time.